Welcome everyone to Politrex. It's been a very long time and we are very, very happy to be back in the saddle. It's been a long November, but it has been a good November because a very ambitious project was started by Shashank and yours truly. Of course, I'm Barry DeFord and with me as always is the often imitated, never replicated Mr. Shashank Avaru, who will be showing up in the actual episode itself. This is just an intro, but on this episode we have a discussion collaboration with Brett O'Shea from Revolutionary uh, Left Radio. Um, we're going to be looking at the book Methods Devour Themselves by Benjamin Shiungao and Josh Mufawet Paul. Their book encapsulates the dialogue between science fiction and philosophy, something we Trek fans are definitely no strangers to. And this whole book that we are promoting um, on behalf of uh, the two authors is a translation of that discussion between Politrex and Revolutionary Left Radio. So to keep you in the loop, um, I have added some nice recognizable Star Trek sounds um, that will occur between our conversation. So you'll hear something from TOS or TNG mostly that will open up and close moments in the conversation between Brett, Shashank, and myself, and it'll flip over to the interview between either Josh or Benjamin. Brett was the person who interviewed Benjamin, and I interviewed Josh, and it has been a very long time coming, so we're extremely excited to be giving you this very long, two-hour-long episode. So buckle up and uh, prepare for uh, a, a wonderful and interesting ride. So just understand that uh, we weren't uh, just disappearing on you, no pod fade coming from us. We just had some very ambitious things going down uh, down the pipe for you all. So also because both interviews were so very valuable, I am also going to be having the two interviews with Benjamin and Josh dropped as a separate episode as well for you to listen to if you want to hear the entire thing yourself and uh, get your own takes on it. And then you can definitely feel free to have another listen or a first listen to the conversation that happens between Shashank, Brett, and myself. And obviously, the holiday season is upon us, and uh, we would definitely encourage you to pick this book up if you are a sci-fi fan and a fan of political philosophy. Um, this is a speculative fiction, sci-fi fantasy, uh, political philosophy book that I have just thoroughly enjoyed. The writing is iridescent. It is amazing, and it is wonderful. It is worthy of, of Guinan, I would say, in a lot of cases. So with that, let's get on to the interview. We'd also like to just thank everyone for uh, for putting their their parts into this all the uh, all the people the authors uh, Brett and uh, Dave over at RevLeft and to you humble listener who I hope will enjoy and give us plenty of feedback so with that here's the show all right so Brett may, yeah maybe you could just tell us about yourself first and uh, then we'll tell you a little bit about us absolutely well my name is Brett O'Shea I'm the host of Revolutionary Left Radio and the Guillotine um, me and Barry met probably through that, but we've developed a friendship uh, and a mutual respect over time. And, you know, being able to work with Barry on this project has been really fun. And having a little mixture of our two shows, I think, is going to be in incredibly interesting and mirror in interesting ways the work that we're actually covering in this in this show. So, yeah. So you, you, you definitely do a podcast from a very specific left-wing perspective, right? Is there any specific left-wing ideal that you try to post or poll or anything like that? Well, on Revolutionary Left Radio, 
um, we kind of take a what has been termed a pan-leftist approach. So it's not so much about pushing a certain tendency on the radical left. It's more like um, opening up space to have nuanced and complex dialogue between many different tendencies and many different representations of radical left politics. Um, we want to be very welcoming and open in that way. And I think hopefully we've succeeded in that. And on the guillotine, um, you know, my individual tendency and my individual analysis might come out a bit more. I'm clearly on the Marxist side, side of things if pressured to, to really name my tendency, I would say that I'm a Marxist, Leninist, Maoist, but I usually just refer to myself as a Marxist or a communist. And my co-host on the guillotine is an anarchist, so the uh, an insurrectionary anarchist uh, to boot. So the interactions there are kind of interesting, and where we converge and where we disagree is part of, I think, the the interesting aspect of the show. So you could say that if someone was maybe not identifying themselves at all, or they would identify on other sides of the political spectrum, I'm guessing far right might not be terribly interested. But if you were, say, in the center, part of the Democratic Party, maybe even uh, a Republican who might be a bit dissatisfied with things over there, you could also find at least Revolutionary Left Radio accessible for like learning purposes. Yeah, I mean, 100%. And we hope we hope to reach uh, those folks. And I even have an entire like two and a half hour episode where it's called Rev Left in Dialogue with Liberalism, where I have a liberal historian. And we don't debate, we, we have meaningful, respectful dialogue back and forth. So I'm very much about having an open mind and engaging critically with with topics and not being dismissive or angrily sectarian if somebody disagrees with me politically. Um, so if, if you're a Democrat, if you're a centrist, even if you're a conservative or a libertarian, um, you know, I, I really hope that you could still get something out of our shows. And I certainly think that you'll be able to get something out of out of this one. What about you? What, what's what's your show for for my listenership that doesn't is, might not be familiar with with what you all do on Politrix? You want to introduce yourself and say a little bit about your guys's project? Certainly. Well, my name is Barry DeFord. I am the co-host of Politrix, and with me, as always, is my often imitated, never replicated co-host Shashank Avaru. Shashank, how about you let Brett know a little bit about what we do over on the Politrix? Namaste, Homo sapiens. I am completely out of my element today. Uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I am Shashank Avaru. I co-host Polytrex. I write computer programming by day. I write comic books by night. And uh, when I can, I try to get away from it all by jumping into the high stakes and exciting, entertaining world of politics. And uh, uh, so it's it's a little bit of everything, really. But first and foremost, I'm a nerd. That's, that's really the perspective I think I'm bringing in today. Uh, and that's kind of what we do on Polytrex is... Uh, uh, we try to take everything in Star Trek uh, that we think is interesting and we try to connect it to the real world. So we'll take an authoritative figure from Star Trek, for example. Uh, and like for a listener uh, who might know, there is a character named Gal Dukat, who's kind of a space dictator in, in one of the series, uh, Deep Space Nine. And then we take him and we break him down in an episode on, you know what this is trying to tell us about the real world is it's trying to tell us about Muammar Gaddafi in some ways. It's trying to tell us about... Uh, it's trying to tell us about some authoritative presidents, prime ministers, and uh, that's based the gist of what we do on Polytrex. And uh, you take characters, you, we take themes, we take ideas. Every now and then we'll do something exciting called Debatrex, where we'll take a specific part uh, that we think is politically or socially interesting in Star Trek, and we both or some some guest will have a certain opinion on it that not either of us do not share so we'll we'll see if uh, we'll see about having a respectable debate about that particular topic within Star Trek so uh, long story short we discuss politics and culture within the realm of Star Trek and we try to connect it to the real world 
So the vision of both this whole project, uh, dear dear listeners on uh, on both sides of uh, RevLeft and on Politrex, the whole point is is a book got released recently by a political philosopher and a, s- a speculative um, science fiction fantasy writer uh, named uh, Benjamin Shidungao, and. Both of them, uh, J. Uh, uh, Mufawad Paul, the uh, philosopher, or the the philosopher, um, and uh, Benjamin, what they ended up doing was creating what what you could say is like a a dialogue between a science fiction, speculative fiction, fantasy story, and then the the deeper sort of political implications of that. The the criticisms, usually coming from a left wing or post colonial uh, background or or concept. So I think. With that, that kind of got me thinking about my two loves, which is politics, specifically uh, political philosophy, and then, of course, science fiction, namely Star Trek. But we will be branching a little bit out in this, uh, and you'll notice that in the interviews as well, as they'll be spliced in and out of my conversation, or uh, sorry, they'll be spliced in and out between Brett Shashank and my conversation that we're going to be having about both the book, which is known as Methods Devour Themselves, a conversation, and then um, our interviews. So Brett interviewed Benjamin and I interviewed uh, uh, Josh Mufawad-Paul. You may notice we're going to call him JMP from time to time, just simply. So that's a little, um, if you're listening and you hear us say JMP, we just mean the philosophy author of that book. And we'll probably call, we'll probably refer to her as B just, you know, for brevity's sake. Yeah, B as well. So, and then I don't know. Um, in that respect, uh, we can call each other by special and secret nicknames if we want. You guys got my email on special secret nick- nicknames, right? Oh no! Oh damn! Damn! <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say though, before we start, for Rev Left listeners, JMP, you would know him from our episode on continuity and rupture. He wrote that that book on on Maoist philosophy, released by Zero Books. We did an episode with him, so you know if you're at least familiar with that, then you'll have some orientation to what we're doing here. And if if Shashank is out of his element, as he says, um, I too am out of my element in some ways. You know, I come out of the p- political world, and although I'm interested in and always have loved science fiction and fantasy, both in film and in literature, um, you know, I'm certainly in over my head when it comes to to these two with regards to that. So Barry, who has a you know a firm foot in both worlds, will help us and act like a bridge. Uh, so I really think this is a pretty pretty damn unique episode in, in both of our catalogs, and I'm excited. To to, to jump into it. Full agreement. Yeah, it's an elaborate exercise uh, that is being jumped into from two different podcasts, all to just make Barry look good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really a Barry vanity project. It is totally <laughs> a vanity project. So, uh, there we go. I guess um, if, if you're ready to jump in. Yeah, let's jump in. Um, the first sort of question maybe is just sort of zooming out and what are your overall thoughts? So, so what are your overall thoughts on the book and the interviews that we're about to listen to? And, and what did you find particularly interesting or valuable in any of those? First of all, I found, I found, and the best word for it would be, um, for, for bees writing in methods devour themselves. And now that I'm reading winter glass, her actual novel, I think the best word, and I've been thinking about it for a long time is incandescent. Her hmm. writing actually has sort of a glow to it almost. There's um, there's a lot of visuals that, that will kind of almost cause you to squint if you look directly at it in your mind, because she comes from a perspective that is completely outside of what the West would, would give you. 
So I found that very much in her writing. When she starts to talk and when we, when we start to hear her introduce sort of the concepts and ideas that bring her to writing, you also see very much a, a context that is far beyond what myself, a, you know, uh, a person living in so-called uh, Canada in, in Western society, I guess, as we would call it, I don't really have much context. And that was almost the best part for me because it really felt like I was stepping outside of my own imagination, I think is the best way to put it. So mm. that's kind of where I would start just talking about bees work in specific. Yeah. Shashank, did you have any thoughts? Uh, I, I'm going to be entirely honest. I did not get an opportunity to read the book in full. I did get to read uh, part of it, but I, I, uh, I got to spend some time with both your interviews. So I guess I'll start off there. Uh, there is there is something really unique as someone who is and guys do not uh, do not find me and uh, uh, like mow me down. I have a dog that I need to take care of. I am a Democrat. Uh, I identify as a Democrat. Sure. And uh, and why, when I put that part aside and I objectively listen to both the interviews, when she's saying things like, you know, she's she's very honest about uh, something like. You know, Westerners cannot follow fiction. That's about Mexicans. When she when she goes into that part of the interview, uh, that felt very very uh, connective to me. That was something that I could instantly relate to because all my life, I have been I, I have been exposed to both movies with that are full of brown people, books that are full of brown people, people that look like me, and and also I've uh, gone out of my way to expose myself to to Western media and. Uh, it's there is certainly a disconnect that kind of in a in a in a few uh, in a few aspects goes goes both ways. Like I, there are some things I cannot connect to when it's like a white guy and a white girl falling in love and they're both pretty. Like I can't, <laughs> I do not get that. Uh, and it's not it's not like a critique on what they're trying to do. It's it's pretty much what she's talking about, where she says, you know, when somebody doesn't look like you. Their names don't sound like the names you know, and they're they're telling you the story of an environment that you do not understand. Of course, you're not going to get it, but that is kind of where the challenge is that she talks about and what she was trying to tackle with with the book. So uh, that was a great interview for me to listen to, Brett, and uh, full kudos to you on on that interview. Thank you. Uh, going to the to the JMP and Barry interview, the there was a little more Star Trek discussed in there. So I kind of had uh, some more authority personally in there. And uh, when he says something, and this is something that only a non-Trekkie could come up with, he he pretty much puts Barry in, in his place when he says, you know, you don't think about it, but Starfleet is kind of an imperial organization. Mm. And I never thought about that until he said it. Mm. And I could almost hear Barry trying to scramble for words. It's like, <laughs> what do I say now? Because the Trekkies are going to listen to this. Uh, <laughs> so it was a, it, it was a very, uh, they, they're uh, definitely full of uh, a lot, lot of good thoughts, facts, insights, and opinions that somebody who, who comes from an entirely, uh, no pun intended, left field, can can look at and and understand and and relate to so like i guess my big thoughts are good job you guys <laughs> well thank you yeah yeah and I, I really found the part where, where b was talking about how difficult it is for you know certain even like western publishers and stuff to relate to you know asian characters for example um and and i think at one point she says you know a lot of people in the west have an easier time relating to hannibal lecter than they do just to a regular protagonist with a weird name from a different country and uh you know i think that speaks volumes 
Um, do you just have kind of a side question, but I think this is kind of interesting. Do you find it difficult with publishers in, in the West or centers of, of capitalism to get your ideas out and published? And, and what have, what have some of your experiences been with that? Yeah, uh, for one issue I have personally faced is that, okay, people think the names of my characters are difficult to pronounce or even unpronounceable, but there are just Thai names or Chinese names that are actually obviously quite normal in my part of the world. My friend Sylvia Moreno-Garcia has mentioned before that uh, editors have no trouble relating to Hannibal Lecter. Mm. They find Mexican teenage characters so hard to connect with because their names are weird or they live in uh, in Mexico and, and a lot of Western writers just find that so unrelatable. And that is pretty funny given that uh, re- a lot of readers and editors have no problems relating to a literal serial killer. <laughs> right. Uh, that, that, does, that does speak volumes. So there's that cultural difference as well. Um, you know, what I enjoyed about this, the, the books and the interviews over, I mean, the book, we have two great writers, right? Each in different fields, each coming from fiction and nonfiction respectively, but two people that are really masterful with the pen. And that not only makes it engaging and it not only makes it accessible, but it really makes it like an aesthetic sort of experience when you're going back and forth between, you know, B's fiction and JMP's uh, nonfiction and how they interrelate and weave together. When you have two high caliber writers like that, it really makes this experiment um, even better and, and more um, valuable and fulfilling as, as a reader and a thinker. So I don't want to say too much because, again, we're going to have the interview so people can, can make up their own minds as we go. But that's what I would sort of say up front. It's really worth a read. It's a short, it's a short text. It's challenging, but it's also accessible, and it's really well written. So if people are interested, it doesn't take that much time to get through, and, and it's, definitely, it's definitely worth your time. So I guess I want to move on to you know, a couple more introductory questions. And one way to think frame this conversation would be to talk about how um, politics uh, and social realities sort of shape art and vice versa. So, so how does politics and, and social realities shape science fiction and fantasy? And how does science fiction and fantasy specifically influence or interact with our political and social realities? I think, um, I think yeah, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the first crack at this one. When you think about Star Trek coming out in 1966, the vision was a united Earth. And if you look at the context within Star Trek, of course, it is coming from the center of capitalism. It is coming from a a country that is at that point in 1966 ramping up a illegal war in Vietnam. It is It is throwing its weight around and in a direct competition with another gigantic superpower who later on is going to earn the ire and criticism of its, say, like its invasion of Hungary and uh, the different revolutions that are taking place around the world. This was a tumultuous time. And Star Trek doesn't even bat an eye at the idea of the entire world is unified together. It it was a it, it's a it's a it's a planet that supports that every individual supports each other, and we are now moving forward into the galaxy, looking around, meeting new groups, trying to create relationships. Obviously, coming into conflict from time to time, but always in the spirit of exploration and discovery. So, I think right then and there, you can almost see and feel the aspirations of even just regular people within the United States. And then when you look at when you look at the people who who are actually under oppression, right? When you think about, say, um, uh, Uhura, who is played by Nichelle Nichols, 
who actually wanted to leave Star Trek at some point, and Martin Luther King Jr. specifically told her to stay on the show to keep the the black voice alive within this wow. science fiction. And since then, we have had African-American actors grace the screen, direct, write. Um, I mean, I'm looking at, at, at my gigantic Star Trek board, and I've got Michael Dorn, who played Worf, the guy with the wrinkly head in The Next Generation, and I have a, an autograph from Nichelle Nichols as well. These are these are people who inspire me, and, and as a Euro-Canadian, I am inspired, I look up to, I see the talent in these other people. And then, of course, with George Takei, he was actually interned during the Second World War in the United States because he's Japanese, and he still shares this vision that Gene Roddenberry had of a unified world. And, you know, he's written extensively on the fact that he's angry at his country for what has happened, but he still believes in his country regardless. And and I could never imagine the amount of pain and anguish and sorrow he went through to to, to get to that point. So I think right there, there's there's a, just using the Trek example specifically, there's there's an interplay and an interconnection there. Shushank? Uh That was a very interesting question to me. And since Barry covered the, the Trek of it all, I have always thought of science fiction as uh, as uh, an astute student of politics and reality in that if you look at any science fiction story, be it from Isaac Asimov, be it from Ray Bradbury, uh, who are like, you could, you could say in some stories are at the opposite ends of the spectrum. And then you go into something like Star Trek, which presents a very hopeful future, a future in which humanity has actually resolved its issues and it has gone on to better things and it has gone on to the greatest adventure uh, as the show likes to call it or you could look at something like blade runner which i imagine we'll talk about in a, here in a little bit which is which is the worst uh, or, or not the worst which is a very realistic depiction of a sci-fi dystopia so uh, i've always thought of science fiction uh, and this is an eye that I guess you develop when you're really trying to look for it. So this might just be my perspective. But all science fiction is either really, really trying to mirror our reality and politics, or it is trying aggressively to be the opposite of our reality and politics. So if we are today in a world where everybody is disagreeing with each other, you look at Star Trek and then you see a place where people people have a set of fundamentals that they've agreed on. And that is where the power comes from, is that everybody has come to an agreement. And then you go to a time where everybody is agreeing with each other. Then you see something like Star Wars, where the, the fundamental uh, belief that there is this thing that holds all of us together itself is a divisive topic, even between the heroes. Like when you see Han Solo interact with Luke Skywalker, he says, I, that force stuff is mumbo jumbo. Uh, like even even people who are trying to go for a cause cannot still agree on this fundamental uh, thing that connects the universe as according to that particular uh, fiction's lore. So all of science fiction to me is either, hey, this is the reality that I'm trying to teach you about, or hey, this is the reality that I'm trying to aspire you to. And uh, that's that's really a lot of what Star Trek is too, and 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 they've tried to do that. Uh, Star Trek has the unique benefit of having the ability to show at one point of time how great things are in one place, and then just how a complete disaster in other places. If if you look at this show that we talk about on the show often called uh, Deep Space Nine, 
it's about a structurally run uh, well well placed organization called starfleet that is trying to help a nation that has just come out of genocide and uh, imperial rule which is a, one opposite trying to confront another opposite and that's one of the fundamental conflicts of the show so that's that's what is politics and reality within science fiction it is it is just that that is all that science fiction is the 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 veneer of numbers and uh, science if you will is just in there to give you a an a gateway into the the mirror of uh, it's either the mirror darkly where you see it and you go oh this is horrible i can't imagine this is the future that we're going to or it's the uh, beautiful clear water mirror where you look at it and go oh this is really hopeful and this is where we actually can go so that is all that science fiction is to me in a, in a way That's, yeah super interesting I, i would say you know kind of building on both of of what you've said um you know science fiction by by putting the human condition into the future into you know an alien environment whether literally or metaphorically is an attempt to sort of get some space from our current socio-cultural um, you know realities but it, that space allows you to more easily maybe criticize or analyze or push the envelope on some things that you wouldn't necessarily always be able to do on a straight retelling in the present time but moreover you know I, I'm, I'm coming from the the Marxist uh, political philosopher perspective of things and you also have to understand that all uh, art you know gener- art art is generated in a material context meaning science fiction fantasy whatever art literature anything is 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 ultimately a manifestation of the underlying um, you know socio historical cultural milieu that 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 writer or those those teams of filmmakers are operating in and so in a lot of ways um, it's going to always reflect and and you know point towards its material roots and part of the you know critical theory coming out of the Frankfurt school or marxists who want to talk about ideology and analyze film and culture is that by analyzing these these cultural products you can actually have a pretty interesting and insightful door through which to uh, analyze the broader culture and society that that one is living in so in that way you know this interplay between art and uh, the political and social realities are always sort of in this back Back and forth with one one another, informing each other, rooted in one another, um, and that's why I think we're able to analyze things like like Star Trek and and draw um, you know parallels or zoom out and talk about you know our, our own social realities using that as a doorway. And for people who sometimes might think that political theory is too dense or not at all their interests, um, art and science fiction and fantasy and literature offer a door in to to some of this stuff. And that's why we we do do shows where we analyze an entire film. Because for some people, that is a far more accessible way to start under, understanding some of these deeper critiques of, of society and culture. So in all those ways, including everything that both of you said, um, it's important and, and it certainly interacts. I also very much appreciate considering uh, coming from the, the Marxist sci-fi fan p- perspective. I like the amount of times you use the word space <laughs> in your conversation. For sure. <laughs> Brett, let me, let me ask you. So from your unique marxist perspective i guess barry can weigh in on this too what is your objective view of star trek do you do you think star trek uh like the way it exists without the hope of it all what do you do you think uh, just what are your thoughts on it in, in, like if you were to sum it up yes yeah. 
so so certainly talking about the the original Star Trek, it is simultaneously of its time and and incredibly impressively progressive, right? So when I look at the original Star Trek, I see um, a team of of people behind that show. Um, really, really trying to push the envelope on social issues. I mean, I, I know that it was the first time you had an interracial kiss, you know, displayed on television, for example. And in that way, it is incredibly progressive. But in other ways, it's so, and, and you almost can't blame it for this because we're all sort of lost in the fog of our own time. But it does replicate some of some interesting um, social hierarchies, even though it talks about you know being in a, a post-class society. There is a hierarchy aboard the ship, and we can maybe talk about you know what hierarchy uh, is demanded of a, of a situation like that or or are hierarchies absolutely necessary in the context of you know more militaristic uh, outfits for example but there was at the end of the day still a, a white man at the helm um, leading you know uh, a journey into space to if not it's not explicitly to colonize but there is that imperial instinct there is that that American frontier aspect to going out and seeing what else we can we can do in the universe and although it's at least in my understanding and again I'm no expert on on <laughs> on Star Trek so don't don't uh, don't hammer me too hard for this stuff but um, there is that that element of, of things that that I see, and uh, I'm not sure what fully to make out of it. But I simultaneously love the show, and I also see it as, as a as a show very much of its time, but striving to be ahead of itself. Yeah, white man leads the show while the black lady answers the space phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I would just say you know, and that and that that. Uh, hardworking uh, uh, lady in the back there is also wearing a very high skirt. So right. There was, you know, levels of misogyny that, it, that that was still pervasive within that. Like, I was surprised that the captain's chair didn't have an ashtray mm. uh, when, I, when I think about it now, you know, it was in the 60s <laughs> right. and stuff. How did this unique collaboration with JMP come to be, and what was your goal in doing it? So uh, he had been reading my fiction for a while and he approached me about this project and I jumped at, at the chance because usually you don't really, unless you are a very famous author or dead or both, you don't really get to engage with, you don't really get people doing uh, very critical engagement with your work and it was a, it was a very original way to do it. My, I, my, my goal of doing it was to build a really unique work where the nonfiction and fiction components interact with each other in a way that you should that you don't usually see see done so much because uh, usually literary criticism is very separate from the fiction. It's done very separately uh, rather than as a collaboration. This almost sort of brings up the idea that that using artifact philosophers, folks who have died or who aren't with us anymore or who, say, refuse to engage or something like that, you see that as, as not as useful as engaging with people who are actually here, who can actually um, respond. I would wonder if you would be able to kind of elaborate on that point. Um, I wouldn't say not as useful. I think they have different uses, and I use analogies from people that are dead all the time in literature and art that I think is useful for explaining things as a, as a rubric to explain ideas. I just felt, and I think this can just refer back to what I was saying in the last chapter, I felt, and I know B felt as well, that this this project would be something different. It would produce a, a different way of thinking about things. Not better, but just kind of, I, I kind of said that at the end of the 
introduction, but like what would what would it be like if you know the author could respond back? So it wasn't just like artifact, as you said. What mm-hmm. would it be like? It's not suddenly saying one is better than the other. Um, it's just saying that this this way of doing things might produce a different way of reading for readers. Yeah, I think I think maybe we we can we can go on to the next bit here and and talk a bit about our thoughts on this is this is an engagement that we're having with two authors and until the early 1990s we were also able to engage with say you know the the guy who who started Star Trek Gene Roddenberry and today we can engage a lot with um different science fiction artists for, uh, authors for better or for worse such as like JK Rowling or George R R Martin or Gene Roddenberry in the past or currently George Lucas so what are your guys' thoughts on engaging with living authors versus dead ones uh, Brett, would you like to go ahead? I, I can try. This is a challenging question. I guess I've never really thought about it. I've never had the question explicitly formulated like this and had to had to respond to it. I guess some of my initial thoughts are when you're looking at an author of the past, um, a creator of any sort, they're, they're sort of, they're stuck, you know, I'm using sort of JMP's, you know, terminology here, but in the amber of their time, right, their work is is done, the the author is dead, you can look back on it, understand it in its historical time, um, and draw lessons from it, but you, it's almost like it's a, the, the work of art that any person creates after they're dead is sort of stuck in time, and as time goes on, you know, people comment on it, etc., and it just piles up a whole secondary empire of, of people talking about the original work, you know, all of that but with a living author that person is still just by virtue of being alive still developing and they're they're operating in the same time that you are operating in so i can go back and i can read you know uh, karl marx for example 150 170 years ago and get a lot out of it but it's also very interesting to read somebody like jmp who's coming out of that same principled marxist um, tradition but is operating in this very unique time and politically you know we're facing you know the, the insurgent fascist movements around the globe we're facing climate catastrophe we're facing a sort of crisis of legitimacy of, of capitalist democracies around the world and people are struggling with that. So to hear somebody come out of the Marxist tradition living in this time today discussing it is always going to be a different experience than trying to go back 150, 200 years and extract what meaning you can out of a previous author and try to apply it to totally new conditions. That's our job and it's fascinating. It can be done, but you know, engaging with, with contemporary authors and creators uh, versus dead ones has that, those sorts of differences uh, in, in dynamics. Uh, there is also uh, the question of development for living authors, at least particularly to me, or lack thereof. I'm a huge fan of J.K. Rowling. I've uh, I grew up reading the Harry Potter series. My I I was bought the VHS and the DVDs, or what I don't know if anybody remembers this. There were between DVDs and VHSs. There was this thing called the VCD, which used to be uh, two uh, discs of having. Uh, broken down a movie into half, or maybe that was just an Indian thing. I don't know. Uh, That's funny. But, yeah, not familiar. Uh, uh, yeah, th- and so the I, I watch them over and over, and they're kind of still modern fables to me in a way. But if you just take the Harry Potter series, this is a person who has become the world's first billionaire uh, by writing books. She's the she's the first person in recorded history to ever make a billion dollars by writing a series of books, and uh, yet it it took her. 
publishing her entire series and making that billions to then come out and say, oh, hey, Dumbledore was gay all along. And uh, even though there is no specific mention of that made in the books or there, there is not even a line printed where he it's it it uh, there are places where it is alluded to, but there isn't a specific remark that says uh, something to the li- to the effect of he kissed a man or, you know, he made love to a man. That was that was never made clear. And uh, now, 11 years down the road, she is back in uh, doing stuff within that within that realm again and now she's authoring screenplays for those of you unfamiliar she's doing the new series called fantastic beasts which goes back in time and shows these characters when they're young particularly there's a young dumbledore who's famously being portrayed by jude law and the two movies in again while specifically telling the entire world this is a gay character who's interacting with men and who's in one of the movies has a very troubled relationship with a man uh, he's clearly there is a connection there, and yet she she does not have, or she's constrained by the fact that she's uh, she represents so many people and so many financial interests that she cannot make that statement, even though she clearly, very explicitly has stated that this is happening. So there is even the lack of uh, development that that is one of the things that's concerning to me. But I also recognize that. In engagement with any author is first and foremost a privilege. That person never has agreed to to engage with the person who's who has bought that person's pro, that person's intellectual property. The 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 agreement begins and ends with at least to me. Hey, you give me your five bucks, I'll give you my comic book. Or hey, you give me your ten bucks, I'll give you my novel. And that is where the engagement begins and ends. So anything out of that is a privilege. So in a way, what what I said so far seems like when if if I was to go down and press J.K. Rowling, she could very well tell me to f off, and that is completely in her right. So there there is the it is it is a complex issue for sure. Yeah, you've mentioned a uh, uh, Harry Potter, and sort of the interesting thing about what J.K. Rowling tries to do is we'll we'll go back like post hoc right and look at her old work and then put in meaning for um you know progressive social issues that weren't actually there in the original creation of the work itself so as like society progresses and like trans issues comes to the fore she'll go back and you know deem one of her past characters trans in a sort of post hoc way uh, that sort that sort of reflects the criticism that that you're talking about there how, how do you think about that sort of action do you think it's the the sort that's well intentioned but ultimately sort of harmful? Oh, with Rick Rowling in particular, I kind of have, I, it's hard to think of it as well-meaning because it's for, I mean, there is no textual evidence to support any of it. She literally just go, comes on Twitter and then goes off. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost random at this point. Like Now, Nagini is an Asian woman, which has a lot of unfortunate implications. It's, I would say that the way she goes about it is pretty terrible. I think if there is nowhere, nowhere for the text itself to support it, it's a really bad idea. And most writers should not try for it. Absolutely. Barry? Yeah, that, that was all That was all very good. I, I don't know if there's much else I can add to that. Um but no, that that really that really got it, and and yeah, I think Benj, uh, Benjamin really does kind of bring that up in the sense of like if you're going to make a gay character, make them gay, 
don't 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 retcon them years later but then again also you know imagine if star trek came out today or if lord of the rings came out today where they would be aligning themselves a lot more you know would um would would gene roddenberry make the exact same choices i would i would argue no and and there would be more progression there and and more things taking place but i think the biggest piece of this is it really underscores, especially in Western science fiction, also in Western consumption of media and books and everything, that we also are dealing with a um, a society that has a long ways to go still. Yeah, and that leads to you know another question, and it's sort of based on on something that that Benjamin said. But Benjamin talks about you know the realities of of being a contemporary artist. I mean, she is you know a living author in that way, and she said that you know unless you are famous, dead, or both, you don't really get people critically engaging with your work in the way that JMP has clearly engaged with hers. I feel that's like sort of a good jumping off point to discuss the ideas behind our collaboration here. In some ways, we are mirroring what B and JMP did in Methods Devour Themselves. In that, as we've talked about, I'm coming from the world of political philosophy, and you both come from the world of science fiction and fantasy. But here we are engaging across spheres in the same way that they did. So what is important, in your opinion, about this critical engagement across fields that both their book and our interview are, are attempting to do? And why is it why is it so novel in, in, in the modern time? I, w- I would say just basically the point here is, is I, I feel like I kind of embody that. Uh, in a lot of cases, and this is and maybe we joked about this being sort of my vanity project earlier, and I'm not going to deny that 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 this is sort of a dream come true having uh, one of my absolute best friends Shashank on here, and a, a new friend who is also very inspiring to me, Brett. Um, having you both on is is a wonderful sort of idea, but what it truly represents to me is when we critically engage with the content that's being produced for us. I think we can better understand, better understand our own society, better understand ourselves. You know, if you see, if you're really happy with how Loki has gone from being a villain to a hero in the the Marvel universe, then then maybe there's something you need to critically engage with there as to why you find that in- interesting, right? Is there, is there, is there something deeper philosophically to that? And I mean, sometimes it's nice just to go to a movie and eat popcorn, or sit in your basement and watch a movie and and eat popcorn with friends and and all that sort of stuff. But it always comes down to that, that that the critical engagement with the stuff you're consuming, don't think for a second that the person who wrote it wasn't intending for you to critically engage with it, with the exception of Michael Bay. But outside (laughs) of that, I think what we really see... How dare you? That guy's a loser. Anyways... (laughs) Just a freaking loser. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. Um, I think, and I think that's that's again just bringing it back to to Star Trek. You know, we we do engage quite a bit, and unfortunately, it sometimes that engagement's negative, and sometimes that engagement gets gets quite heated, much like it does in the political spheres. But if we really take a step back and look at what we're what we're supporting, what we're following, what we're listening to what we're consuming, I think we can better understand ourselves, our society, and maybe start imagining alternatives to things that we may not like. So that, that's where I see this, is, is in science fiction, speculative fiction, um, all of those sorts of things, you, 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 you have that opportunity basically every episode uh, or every book that, that you uh, consume. Uh, those are great points. Uh, when reading this question brings to mind for me, this fascinating concept in Star Trek called the Mirror Universe, in which uh, characters happen upon a universe that that has 
their exact versions of characters, except they're distorted in some ways. Uh, for example, if you take someone like Captain Kirk, who's uh, for all intents and purposes a good guy, a clean-cut hero, a very Captain America-like figure, you then take him and put him in this mirrored universe, and he's almost King Kirk. He is, he's uh, dirty, manipulative, he's imperialistic, he's tyrannical. Mm. And... Uh, to me, that's a that's a really good metaphor for our interviews here, and and the book itself, and what you guys are trying to do with this. Uh, it's that there is that imperial side within all of us. There is this fiction loving side in all of us, and it's it's a way to put them one up against another, and and look at them and go, what about this is is so perfectly harmonic that I am still able to exist and and continue living and having a, a, a balance of ideas where I can understand that there is a really horrible side of me that somehow relates to this Imperial Kirk while also being completely connected to this this uh, this real good guy, Kirk, that we know. And the same can be said of fiction on and reality. Uh, reality owes nothing to fiction. Reality will just keep going on whether fiction is being written or not. But fiction owes everything to reality. It is precisely your understanding of reality that uh, fiction relies on. If you don't understand reality, you would never understand fiction. Mm. So uh, to me, the, this series, this this project that that is being done and and uh, what the book and the authors have tried to do to a certain extent is to show that is that uh, you know this is how much we rely on stories to help us get through uh, a reality that is un that is unforgivable we try to look for forgiveness we try to look for joy we try to look for emotion uh, in in a set of fabrications that we have created so we can keep balancing ourselves while going through an unforgiving world mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I would I kind of jumping off some of that is like, you know, we are as human beings, a storytelling animal, right? We're an animal that is sort of obsessed with narrative. And, you know, we have a narrative going on in our heads pretty much all day long. Um, and we, you know, we engage in narratives when we're when we're doing literature or film for sure. But also very much to equal measure in, in politics, right? It's not so like when you're trying to convince somebody to come over to your political ideas or engage in some sort of political discussion um, with somebody who might not necessarily already be in your in your sphere of things, to tell a story, to tell a narrative is is essential. And and you know, I think politicians or even just political actors who who try to discard with that or don't take that seriously end up sort of creating for themselves a sort of curmudgeonly or an unaccessible or just a sort of flat persona. Um, what people respond to is not so much, you know, facts and, 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 you know, stats on things. I mean, just look at any political discussion on Facebook or social media broadly. People aren't really debating uh, the, the facts of things, right? People aren't really interested in, like, getting the objective evidence and compiling that into a worldview. People are interested in telling one another stories about how the world is. Sometimes those stories are way off. Sometimes those stories are ultimately rooted in, in more factual evidence. But either way, when, when you're when you're doing a political program, especially when it comes to getting people to come over and, and help you with it, telling people a story is an absolutely essential way to, to win people over. And I, I think that's important. I think um, people who are trying, organizers, people who are trying to build a better world, uh, definitely need to keep that in mind. You're not going to go out to a regular working class person and necessarily talk to them about Marxist capital, volume 
one in the words that Marx uses, that's just going to be off-putting and alienating for them. And they're like, okay, whatever. But if you can tell them a story about, you know, why they're struggling and, 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 and why certain things in our political system are so screwed up and why it seems like we're not getting anywhere and why we have Nazis marching down our street these days. And that story does not need to be fictional, right? It doesn't need to be made up. It can very much be rooted in, in the evidence and, and good analysis but it's also the way that you're going to connect with that person and explain to them you know, their situation and give them a vision for a better world. So this interaction is absolutely essential, and it makes political actors better if they take it seriously. And then the last thing I'd say, sort of zooming out and talking about academia and talking about sort of the intellectual sphere of our, of our societies and why we don't often see this sort of interesting cross-field engagement, I think part of that is the, the division of labor in our society and in academia, the high hyper-specialization. You know, you're, you're rewarded in academia not for having the, the broadest um, understanding of a bunch of different fields and creatively linking them together in ways that push progress forward, but in academia it's about, it's about getting published, it's about ultimately in, uh, profits for the administration and the university itself, and what this sort of leads to is hyper-specialization, where people just narrowly, narrowly focus on one little sliver of one little field. And what we lose in that is we lose this cross, uh, this cross talk. We we lose this cross pollinization. And in in a in a moment in, in history and civilization that seems so crucial, right? I mean, I, no matter what political arena you're coming out of, you can certainly agree that the 21st century is a crossroads for our species. We either have to fundamentally change the way that we interact with each other in our natural world, or we very well meet go extinct, or at least devolve into some dystopian barbarism. So. At this crucial moment, having people who are really good at one of their fields openly talking to another person who does something different with a whole new skill set and finding where we can learn from one another is is incredibly important. And and what this work shows to me is a real earnest attempt to do just that. And 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 I love it for that reason. And I and I would just to build on that even even further, and this can tie into. Um further discussion is uh, what it really does and what it can do for for those people who are say just stuck in the well I just like my I just like my my sci-fi and that's that or I just want to I just want to talk politics all the time and I I encounter people on both of those ends and I hold nothing against them in that sense but what this can do by 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 bridging this gap especially in academia but then also by reaching ordinary working people with these kinds of conversations, you can expand imagination, hmm. I think, is the best way to look at that. Yeah. And, and if you expand that concept, not just uh, by limiting it to academia, but even fiction and nonfiction, or uh, even on a broader scale, cultures, if because of what are cultures but sets of beliefs that happen to have scattered across the planet, uh, if you stick yourself to trying your best to specialize in only one school of belief, or sticking to only one idea, uh, you, you're losing out by not exposing yourself to a variety of ideas. Mm-hmm. Because there is the there is the question of uh, your intellectual growth being just limited to accepting that one idea and then rejecting everything else because this idea inherently tells you, uh, hey, I am the right idea. Like if you take Christianity or even Hinduism, the religion I come from, uh, it's, it's supposed to just tell you... Uh, Hinduism is the one true religion. And and when you listen to something like that, you, you limit yourself by specializing yourself in it and sticking to it. You limit yourself and your intellectual capability of understanding what the 
political motivations of the old testament are for example mm-hmm. uh because you're you're so stuck in the world of trying to uh fix trying to fixate on your own narrative it's like going to a buffet and saying that hey i really like your cheeseburgers at this buffet what kind of a buffet has cheeseburgers but uh <laughs> a good it's one like going to a buffet it's it's like i want to go to your buffet, buffet. <laughs> <laughs> It's like going to a buffet and saying, "Hey, you have 25 items, but I like your cheeseburger so much. That is the only thing I'm going to eat for the rest of my life." That is a depressing life. Right. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and, and not only does it limit your own development, but at some point, you know, it limits your ability to connect with other people. If if you're so navel gazy, if you're so infatuated with your own narrow view of things and your own your own narrow interests, like it's it's just bad overall for for every aspect of life. And I think most people intuitively understand that. Even if maybe politics aren't your thing, and you're coming from a science fiction background, there's certainly other interests that you have. And when and you see that if you if you're really into like two different things, for example, you have two things that are seemingly totally unrelated, but you're really into both. Your, your brain, your mind can start making associations between those two fields of thought. And that, that gives rise to creativity and intellectual novelty. And, and, and you know, that's important on just an individual development level and also on um, a, a broader geopolitical level where, as Shashank was talking about, you know, we need to broaden our imagination. And those, those associations between different realms of thought and different realms of behavior and different worldviews, I think, is going to become increasingly important. Uh, just one thing I'll say before we move on to other topics is it, to connect it to the Star Trek of it all. Mm-hmm. Imagine a ship. You, if if the ship that you're imagining just has humans in it, that is an incredibly monotone ship, mm-hmm. and that is not uh, a narrative that you will ever enjoy or be entertained by for for the for a longer period of time. And that's kind of why uh, if you look at certain cultures within Star Trek, like there is the there is this culture called the Klingon culture, which very much relies on trying to be within itself and trying to celebrate their own uh, their own heritage in favor of uh, uh, and and rejecting other cultures, mainly something like Starfleet, which is trying to promote a melting pot kind of culture. There's a reason why those guys end up being the antagonists or end up being anti to the narrative that we're trying to tell. Mm. Uh, so. The best ships are those that celebrate diversity, where you have an Andorian sitting next to a Vulcan, sitting next to a a human, and all learning from each other, and all filling in the gaps of this this universe's uh, vast, uh, infinite knowledge and uh, this infinite creativity that is available to you. Uh, By availing yourselves and opening yourselves to that kind of a narrative, you're getting so much more out of life and out of existence than you are uh, by sticking to a very human-based uh, Klingon culture-like ship. Barry, am I am I even close to the point I was trying to make? Oh, yeah, you're hitting it. You're good, man. Yeah, and I think, you know, taking that analogy to the sort of, you know, global political stage, as I'm wont to do, um, you know, you you see countries doing that, right? You see you see an impulse in something like the Brexit vote or an impulse in the, the anti-immigration rhetoric that's all over Europe and, and America at the moment as this attempt to 
um, turn away from from diversity, turn away from from different perspectives, different ways of life. And and when you turn away and you just you just want to have a sort of incestuous, um, narrow world of just people that look and think like you, you know, it's it's really it's it never leads. It never ever leads historically, and it never can lead to anything productive or creative or interesting because it's just it's just an inward spiral, you know, infinitely. And um, Brett, beautiful use of the word incestuous. Yeah. By the way. <laughs> Thank you. you know, I like to slip those in there once in a while. <laughs> what do you think are the responsibilities of science fiction and fantasy creators, whether in literature or film, if if any at all? Part of the current climate change uh, discussion, I think, is that before now, um, let's say like 10, 20 years ago, a lot of science fiction was very positive about technology. As a way forward, nothing, uh, no detriment. And there was not a lot of concern about climate change and all that. So I think that has done a lot to affect the way we view technology today. And we have spent a long time not really thinking about the environmental impact. That in, in, in many ways, I think that was pretty responsible of, uh, of older writers because they didn't really think about this. They are just thinking, oh, uh, we can go to space or we can, we can come up with basically magical technology that will make all this go away. And our current approach to technology is takes a lot of that, that kind of narrative. Do you think as things intensify and as climate change becomes more and more apparent in the everyday lives of people that um, that sort of reflections will happen in, in science fiction going forward, um, either pessimistically or optimistically? Do you think it'll become more of a thing as we sort of struggle with our, our present and future conditions? Yes, I think now there is a lot more post-apocalyptic fiction for obvious reasons. And I think uh, fiction now more... more a lot, of, a lot of writers put a lot more thought into this kind of thing, and there are some movements toward both ends. Some of them espouse a kind of completely pessimistic futures, like post-apocalyptic games like Fallout. Mm. And the other end is are thinking of a positive change and a future where we can reduce our environmental impact, have sustainable energy, that sort of thing. To pull it back to your question about the like, utopia and dystopia, I, I think there's a, a place for both both of those, right? Um, in in the way that we we tell stories, like I don't, I think they can be gritty, they can be not gritty. I, I'm I, I wary of this kind of very simplistic social realism way of telling stories, or oh, it should all just be how you know everything is unified under socialism. I mean, that's what we want, but we're not there. So I think there's like literature and a lot of the great literature by leftists has always taken different positions they've done their own versions of dystopia their own versions of utopia and you know things that aren't either dystopia or utopia as well i mean i think about like, the mixtures like e&m banks like the culture novels have you, have you read the culture novels i have not Okay. Well, I mean, he if you're aware of them like the whole and he died uh, a few years ago, mm-hmm. but um the, his culture novels are kind of like they're like they're communist there's like space communism and so he imagines this 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 far-flung distant civilization um called you know the culture which has reached its position through you know class struggle but a long time ago and has no state formation and is kind of it's you know it 
forces of production are unleashed because the social relations are, you know, have been completely changed. So it's like exactly like you'd see communism. But the problem is, is that what what he makes interesting about it is how it runs into, you know, people that are um, like other other galactic civilizations that don't have those values and so what do you do when you're you know your communism and you're running into these people and so eventually they have like an organization called special circumstances that arises that are just these like ai minds like that are and that hire people and they and they try to prevent um they basically try to spread communism like in a way <laughs> that like the, you know like almost in this cold war way but it's 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 interesting because the books also deal with times that they get it wrong where they make these mistakes and that it causes deep splits and but it's still the but they're still very clear that there that that way is is like it's communism. It's like this way where there's no there's no more classes. People get to do what they want, and because of that, their technology is also better than anybody else's, right? Yeah. So it's it's those are in those those are an interesting way, right? Because it it his those books would look at like how utopian the actual thing is, but then how all these dystopian other competing galactic powers are, and what happens when they clash and can can something that has reached communism can it make mistakes um i mean there's an it's banks isn't the first to do that the strugatsky brothers who were writing in the soviet union they wrote a number of books about that about like space communism trying to figure out how to intervene like um they had this one book called hard to be a god which was made into a very long and onerous avant-garde movie recently that's like four hours long <laughs> but the the original story is just about these uh these these people that are up like they're from all of earth is communist they're way they're out in you know some distant place exploring space they encounter a society that's like the worst form of like european feudalism and they're supposed to watch and so there's a debate between them about are are they bound to intervene or should they just watch because communism can't be imperialism but here's all this so it's an interesting they have these debates right about that so um yeah so I feel that there's a there's this whole opening that this kind of left wing literature can do, and I think that kind of storytelling is is very very important to any kind of political movement. I mean, obviously, I think that when it comes down to it, action is and can only ever be the way forward, right? I mean, I, I'm I'm a I'm a Marxist Leninist Maoist. I believe in like like a vanguard party that has to organize the masses through the mass line and, you know, and, and in order to like make revolution. Um, but, you know, part of that making revolution is kind of creating, a, like taking control of the cultural sphere, like producing your own revolutionary culture with its own values that stand as alternate values to like the bourgeois values and the very reactionary values that come through in a lot of literature and for the purpose of, you know, propaganda, but in that larger sense of the world, because, you know, all literature is propaganda. It's all going to tell you something. Um, and I think these afterwards in Methods Devour Themselves talks about that, the intentionality that's always in literature. But I think this idea of this large sense of creating our storytelling and control that not just like in science fiction and fantasy like in all, all cultural sphere i think a revolution needs to do that that's what the bourgeois revolution did when it took power uh like when it took power over these centuries right it took control of the cultural sphere as well and produced a whole bunch of different kind of like novels and things like that that were way better than the empty ideas of the european aristocracy at that time right now the bourgeois culture is empty right so we should be producing something better and i think absolutely the storytelling and production of art is has to be part of that um but uh moving on to the next question 
Both of our guests talked about science fiction as an art form through which we create and imagine new futures while mired in and wrestling with the present. What is the relationship, in both of your opinions, between past, present, and future, and in what ways has or does science fiction change in response to socioeconomic and political events or epochs? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do uh, an interesting jump here. So I know we're talking about the future speculative fiction, but I'm actually going to use an anecdotal story I heard from my archaeology prof back in my bachelor's degree. They were all at a conference talking about arrowheads, and they were talking about the arrowheads of the Mandan and the Hadatsa people who are very close to the the Sioux Confederacy, just sort of on the 49th parallel kind of North North Dakota, South Dakota area. And what they'd noticed was there was an incredibly sophisticated group of people who are capable of making arrowheads of of like surgical precision like these things looked great and weirdly there was another group of people who lived right alongside like we're talking like carbon dating they they would have had to have interacted and they were awful at making arrowheads they were terrible and yet they seemed to persist just as long as this other group so you got this like huge conference of professors all talking about it and they're all jibber jabbering along and being like oh how could these two societies live together and blah 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 and as the story went from my archaeology prof, she said that a undergrad student put her hand up and said, "What if, what if those those poorly made arrowheads weren't actually from another people, but were actually from like just kids who were learning from their parents to become surgically good arrowhead makers?" And I I was thinking about this in the sense that, like we talked about, if you can expand your imagination and if you can wrestle with the realities of of that expansion happens, I mean, sometimes you're not going to like what you see. Sometimes you're going to come off as seeming like an idiot, like an entire conference full of, you know, thousands of years of educational prowess and experience. And it was an emperor's new clothes moment of like, well, no, kids made those and adult made the adults made those. And they're kind of like, well, I guess we need to call the conference off now. So I would say in that respect, when we're looking at this, it, it, it gives us this ability to, to imagine beyond what we currently see. And I think that's what, that's what SFF does in, in the best in the best part of it. Like you can look at, at Star Wars and maybe get a better understanding of your own religion, watching people wrestle with their belief system. You can watch Star Trek and look at a post-resource society where, where everything is available. And yet seemingly we seem to want to kind of fall into our usual roles. So we can look at these things as as mirrors on ourselves. And as Shashank had mentioned, it is. There, there is a mirror that we we look at ourselves when we look at science fiction and fantasy. But also, it, it, it like we were saying earlier, is it, is it helps us to to think outside of our own, the, 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 the fog of our, uh, the fog of now. And I think, Brett, you had mentioned that earlier. Mm-hmm. And this brings me to a point that JMP brings up in his conversation after we they talked about one of the uh, stories was that Mark Fisher, a author, said that it's easier to envision the end of the world than it is to envision the end of capitalism. And I really do think that. And when you look at Star Trek, when you look at Star Wars, when you look at uh, Babylon 5, when you look at all of these different science fiction stories, you are looking at a time that is either technically pre, but it's all, it, it, these are mostly post-capitalistic societies, right? Where our current paradigm is no longer in in motion it's moving it's changed to something different and so even just giving us the opportunity to envision that 
will help us find solutions in our here and our now. And if we really want to see change, we can use that almost like a target, right? I don't think necessarily everything's going to be exactly as it is uh, in, in, say, Star Trek, but darn, there are some things that I really like to see, like the idea that everyone, if they're hungry, can literally just go and put food in their mouth, or that medical help is free for everyone, no questions asked, even enemies. Um, these are all wonderful things that, that women can can be leaders. And now recently in Discovery, we also see that, that um, LGBTQ people exist, and they are flourishing, and they're doing fantastically well in the future, and they're they're commanding spaceships and blowing stuff up and being awesome, just like they're awesome now. And so, with that, I guess yeah, this this just it's another way to expand our uh, our, our imagination. Uh, so I, I I'll try to break this question down to to two main uh, to two main ideas, and interestingly, the first one, which is what is the relationship between past, present, and future can actually be answered using a piece of fiction called Battlestar Galactica. And one of the uh, greatest lessons in that show, uh, the BST reboot, is that characters often say uh, from their uh, from their scriptures, all of this has happened before and all of it will happen again. And there is something both comforting and terrifying about that. Uh, the past, present, and future are really uh, almost at once both very, very similar and uniquely different learning experiences for human beings. If you look at something like uh, the interaction between genders, the the agendas have always been the same from, from when we started speaking to now when we can uh, communicate literally between uh, a space station and uh, something floating in space and something on Earth. Uh, the agendas for the the interaction have always been the same. It's it's uh, companionship, sex, uh, finding uh, finding security. Those have always been there. And the things that have changed about these three things is that uh, the socioeconomic relations have changed. Uh, technology has brought about uh, a, a different way to communicate between. Uh, between us that that we did not envision having in the past. So in that way, the present gives us more access to get to our agendas easier. If you even take something as simple as cleaning the house that you're living in, the early man did it pro- probably with their with their hands in caves. The the medieval people did probably did it with a, a straw broom in their uh, wooden huts, and now we are doing it using Roombas in our uh, in our matchbox apartments. But the agendas have always been the same. And, and that is, again, very, very comforting, very, very inspiring, but also terrifying uh, because we have not figured out how to go post-cleaning. Uh, we have not figured out uh, on a broader scale. We have not figured out how to go post these fundamental interactions that, that keep bringing us back to, uh, in, in some ways, this uh, this circle of of the human condition that we seem to have become slaves to while giving ourselves the illusions that we have mastered it. Uh, so science fiction uniquely again has the opportunity to uh, going back to my earlier point, either give us inspiration to get past it or give us comfort in knowing that this is good. So if we take something like Star Trek, it gave us a hopeful future at a time when, as Barry mentioned earlier, things were dark. And if you take uh, 
this is not really science fiction or fantasy, but if you take something like Rocky Four, it gave us a hopeful time during a dark time. And then, uh, if you remember all through all through the eighties, the the dystopian fiction, uh, especially dystopian science fiction like Blade Runner and Terminator, really flourished because people were finding comfort in the idea that there will be a uh, this sounds horrible because the world was so close to the brink of nuclear war that they were just happy that there was the idea of a realistic future in which humanity survived. And that's why dystopian fiction itself had had a, uh, had a, had a resurrection of sorts. So the best things that uh, fiction has done in the way of changing as time has gone by is it has either, uh, it has either found a way to tell stories that comfort people or it has found a way to tell stories that horrify people while giving them the tools or at least a tool to combat that fear that they've been dealing with. Hmm. Yeah, that that dovetails really nicely with with sort of what I have to say on this topic, which is, you know, just thinking from from my perspective, when the present gets particularly bad, as perhaps it was, you know, in, in the 80s when you saw the rise of some of those dystopian films, but certainly as it is today, um, you have you have two directions, right? You have you have two ways to go. One is to look to the past, right? And I think neoliberalism, I think reactionary politics, fascism, they very much like to 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 draw your eyes to the past. Neoliberalism does this in like a cultural way in that you, you see this rise of, of nostalgia in culture. You see a bunch of reboots of old films um, from the 80s and 90s when we were kids trying to push us back into that that uh, the joy the joy of, of being a, a child, for example. And then, um, so it does it in that more subtle cultural way, neoliberalism does but the way that reactionaries do it all over the globe is to is you know the, the present is scary the future is uncertain so what we're going to do is recoil violently into a mythologized past and the mythologized part is important here because these pasts don't really exist so for example when Donald Trump says make America great again what is he talking about what what part of America was great for whom and what time you know for for the vast majority of people whether the victims of imperialism abroad or the victims of racism and sexism and heteronormativity at home, America was never great. And it's just been, you know, especially for indigenous people or, or black folks in this country, America has been a, a horror show of world historical proportions. So, you know, you see this with fascist movements all the time. You know, the Nazis trying to reclaim some some noble Aryan pastime and Bolsonaro, the fascist in Brazil, looks back fondly on the military dictatorship that went from the 60s to the 80s, sort of muddy the waters of memory, you know, about what it really was in the past and, 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 and preferring to go there, even if it's a false past, than to live meaningfully and engage critically with the present or to think about ways to move forward in the future. Because, you know, the, neo, the reactionary has no, no solutions, has no future to offer except, you know, bloodshed and domination and exploitation. Neoliberalism really has nothing to offer except the same old same, um, corrupt politics, economic cla- uh, crashes. Um, eco- eco- ecological collapse on, on a monumental scale. 
And so, you know, all of these things I think are really important. And sci-fi is one way that we try to look to the future. And when you see sci-fi get particularly dark at a certain period, you can see that that the sort of the subconscious of that society is getting particularly dark. And I think right now, I don't know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you, you both know more about this than me, but I can't think of any recent sci-fi that's been very optimistic and hopeful. I mean, from Black, from Black Mirror to Children of Men to Elysium. They're all sort of vomiting up this this dystopian future in, in various ways. Um, they all have different ways of, of how we got to that dystopia or what the conditions of that dystopia are. But I really feel like we're at this moment in time where we can't envision, we can't imagine, we can't articulate a future that's not horrible, you know, and I think that's scary and it's also indicative of our times. And it's also a challenge to people who want a better future. How do we how do we present that vision, that realistic vision of a future that can be in a way that's rooted meaningfully in what actually is at this moment? And so I don't have the answer to that necessarily, but it's important to think about those things. Absolutely. I just I just want to say since you brought up dystopia and and the discomfort of people, I would argue that the 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 beginning of the of the road of dystopia is already here. Hmm. Uh, given, uh, given that you know this horrifying UN climate report that came out recently that said we pretty much only have ten years yep. before Earth turns into a boiling pot, uh, and the the massive socioeconomic change, the massive starvation, the massive class differences. Uh, I would argue that because there wasn't, uh, or maybe there is that we don't know of, because there isn't a writer or a fictional narrative that is popular enough to mirror exactly how the world is going, uh, we are unable to recognize. But I, I would argue that that dystopia is already here. It's just in a form that was not presented to us before. So we don't have a narrative to draw off of. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. I, I completely agree that dystopia is already here. Um, yeah, we we are living in it, and it's it's only going. I mean, it's going to get worse for the for the foreseeable future. That's for sure. Might I say also, Brett? Uh, sorry to also chime in, but uh, I think perhaps the dystopia has finally reached folks like myself. I can really only speak about myself being a person living in a pretty have country from a pretty have family. And, you know, I, I did, I mean, I've had hardship in my life, but, you know, if you compare this to a kid growing up in, in a, in a developing country or in a country that has seen constant chaos and destruction, say like Iraq, if they were born in, in 2002, I mean, their entire lucid life has been at war. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's certainly inflected and emphasized at certain points in certain parts of the world, Syria, Libya, Iraq, you know, a lot of these places, the apocalypse is is already there. And now it's starting to creep into, you know, the quote unquote, first world. Um, And uh, uh, it's 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 horrifying. But it's also if we if we don't fight this fight, who will? But before we move on, I do want to read a little bit from the from JMP's um, opening thoughts and just sort of thought thinking about time and thinking about history and thinking about the imagination being limited, I think he puts it really well. Um, So JMP says, we are nearly two decades into the 21st century and occupy a world cluttered with objects and phenomena that would have been scarcely imaginable even in the middle of the 20th century. All of the dreams of the fantasies of the 1950s are eclipsed by the reality of technological development. The science fictions of the 1960s are largely outdated. And yet we have also failed to transcend the limits of even 19th century imagination. Despite all these new technologies, 
technologies, many of which might must appear like magic to our long-dead counterparts, the world is still determined by the logic of capital. Whereas a 19th century utopian imagined a future that transcended exploitative and oppressive social relations, we are losing our ability to think outside the capitalist box. Following the so-called end of history, our imagination has atrophied. Is it any wonder, then, that much of the world still resembles the hell on earth reviled by past socialist thinkers? As dystopia becomes normative everywhere, endless wars, increased exploitation in the global peripheries, a resurgence of fascist movements in the imperialist metropoles, environmental devastation, it is much more difficult to imagine a time beyond these centuries of capitalist logic. Our imagination is becoming thoroughly capitalist. And if you think about when, you know, Star Trek comes forward, there's all these amazing technological advances. And there were, I would say, some some relatively progressive things. You know, they had a, a diverse crew, they had different groups of people being encountered. I mean, it still has its contradictions and its problems. But I would say nowadays, most of those changes that, you know, Trek, for instance, um, predicted kind of came to pass, though it feels as though that attaining or even surpassing what was expected has turned out to be kind of matter of fact or even boring, kind of like a non-event. Would you say that like the commodification of these new and amazing achievements or the dispos- or, or the disposability and transactional nature of our advancements has sort of rendered them non-issues and kind of non-events, which might also kind of hamper our ability to use SFF in a much more re- ra- radical way? Well, I mean, definitely the commodification has rendered them as what you call non-issues in, in, the, in the way that they would have been seen in, in a science fiction show in the 60s. Um, just because like commodification, the velocity of commodification is such that, you know, all these things just build upon each other. The people are just inundated with these new technologies and they just get slowly merging into this kind of new way of seeing the world like really quickly through this commodity form. Um, I think... I think really what's what's going on is that you know and this goes back to my complaint about a lot of this kind of shows having this productive forces analysis is that the domination of bourgeois social relations is is just recapturing or delimiting technological advancement all the time so they're all being controlled by this by that by the, the 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 class limit that exists under capitalism and so it's it's really strange right because we, we're, we're now and this is what like our world actually is a dystopia. <laughs> like, it literally is one of the worst dystopias. And I've, I talked about this. I, I did talk about this in, in that one chapter in there too, about how, how like the, the reality of the world and what the vast majority of people experience in this world is like more weird and dystopic and horrendous than like the hunger games. Right. And so it's like, so we're living in this world where, where you have the situation where people can communicate globally and instantaneously. Right. And this is the, the, my entire, the, like our entire project, Project, methods to devour themselves comes out of that right it comes out of the fact that you know benjamin is someone that i met on like i mean i i liked her books and everything but that i met i was able to interact with over twitter years ago um and became friends with over twitter and this whole project you know was con- constructed online like i if you know if Technology was like it was when you know I was in early high school, um, or even early when my beginning my undergrad. This pro this you know project wouldn't have been possible. So there's that right. So we have this kind of so we're living in a world where people can communicate globally and instantaneously, but at the same time we have this gap that is increasing between the wealthiest and poorest. 
and it's never been more stark and violent as it is now. So that kind of, and, and it's like technology hasn't really, we have the means with technology, if we had different social relations to deal with that gap, to make the world a more humane and social place, but we don't, right? We don't do that. <laughs> and, and that is why maybe it doesn't seem like so much of an event. Like, it, yeah, there's, you know, there'll be people living in poor countries with cell phones because they need them to communicate to family that might be at refugees in diaspora. Um, but at the same time, they're working these like terrible, like jobs under different, like kind of conditions in the proletariat in the first world, or they're fleeing from like, you know, war zones or anything like that. So yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot to say about kind of even the, the nightmare that underlies the technology we take for granted so i mean we're communicating over computers or i have a tablet and whatever um and this entire information technology requires silicon right i mean silicon is it's like without silicon <laughs> this stuff wouldn't be functioning as it is but silicon people forget it's one of the worst mining industries in the world where like thousands upon thousands of people work in these mines with one of the one of the most brutal extraction processes and then the, the factory process of making silicon useful is even more extractive and productive and people just think oh it's we're now living in this liquidated information economy like, no no it's very material and productive underneath it and that's and it's a brutal brutal mining industry um the silicon industry so there's that as well not to make us feel guilty or anything no. It's just, there's <laughs> well no it's true and I mean, I've, I, I bring this up with my students of, of silicon, but also coltan too. I mean, whole whole civil wars in the DRC have been funded by different companies who extract that that mineral and then use it. And yeah, like like silicon, coltan is needed for the connective tissue. I guess you could say between the the, the electrodes and diodes and in all of the things we're using right now to to communicate with one another. So yeah, yeah. Th this is still very much a almost a neo colonial kind of look at things. We we think about the colonial spheres in the past where all of these nations, I like to call them the, the big four uh, originally, but, um, you know, like England, you know, if we took the United Kingdom, for instance, way back in the day, I mean, it was it was producing iron ore at an alarming rate, but it was because it was extracting it from India and nobody in India was gaining any profit or any kind of capital off of that. They were just basically slaves. And then people wonder why England did so well with it. So no, I, I fully agree with that. And, you know, when, when we look at environments that are quote unquote post-scarcity, like say the one that, that Star Trek brings forward, I almost wonder sometimes if if there is sort of like a a darker history that we could talk about. You know, they they use a, a mineral they call dilithium to move people around, and they've they've touched on you know, oh, we have dilithium mines here, there. Or, you know, we can't go past certain warp speeds because it's a problem. But they never really like delve deeply into it. It's always kind of packaged into this you know thirty minute episode or forty minute episode, and then it kind of gets forgotten about, or it's sort of like our point has been made, and that's it. So in JMP's interview, he said that, contrary to some socialists' perspective of Star Trek, the show actually represents a sort of, quote-unquote, utopian capitalism where the invisible hand has ironed out all differences because there's no trace of class struggle, etc., he goes on. And that Star Trek replicates, as we talked about earlier, the colonial or imperial instinct. So two-part question. What are your thoughts on this criticism of Star Trek, and how would a truly communist Star Trek differ from its current iterations? Do you want to take this one first, Shashank? Sure. Uh, uh, 
it's a fascinating question and and the point was great uh, especially because it followed this line of thought where he said you know you don't think about it but starfleet is actually an imperial organization in in a lot of ways so that there was a new perspective that blew my mind and and when he brought this up uh, this is again probably because i am a card carrying one of those crazy hippie liberal democrats <laughs> but uh, i i kind of think that uh the when he talks about utopian capitalism the hopeful side of me wants to argue that you know this invisible hand is actually visible and if you zoom in on the hand uh it's actually the entire populace working together uh to resolve that class struggle but of course i i cannot i cannot uh not acknowledge that the point he's making makes sense and uh that that is really what happened and so in in a in a way i can see that perspective and uh it's it's a valid criticism to me i'm certainly not going to take away from it there are definitely places within star trek where something like that is acknowledged there are characters that openly uh criticize star trek all the time especially people that do not belong to starfleet they talk about things like oh you say starfleet is great but then you have a secret spy agency that goes around killing people mm. oh you say starfleet is great but you only interfere when you find an economic motive for yourself or you find a way to uh you find a way to benefit starfleet first even though you say that is not the goal so uh the, the criticism definitely has uh, a lot of validity for me as far as the second part goes i would really hate myself if i said anything untoward while i have two communists <laughs> here so i'm just going to respectfully uh, let barry take that one <laughs> fair enough i i think i think the one the one piece there that that is kind of interesting for me and when when um jmp said this it did sort of make me go oh wow and I, and that maybe that was my aforementioned um arrowhead moment where i'd never heard it so succinctly put that that star trek does not represent socialism winning it it, it represents in in a lot of cases that that idea that the invisible hand has actually been successful everything's been evened out we live in a post-scarcity um world and therefore we can move forward with it and so again if you think about imagination i think that that is that is ideologically what capitalism wants is it is it wants to go past and become this this perfect society when you actually read adam smith he is relatively hopeful but you can see the corruptions and what kind of what is created from the relationships through capitalism and and i think that's an interesting sort of piece of it when when you think about the the characters in star trek living in this world where class struggle is non-existence non-existent and that's an interesting point to make you you watch them say in like the the star trek the motion picture that came out in the late 70s they they were intentionally made to to be that kind of post-scarcity, everything-is-fine-now sort of group of people. And you'll notice that most actors don't know what to do with their hands. Um, Voyager is like that as well, the Star Trek Voyager, where they were their, their personalities were actually directed to be not as sort of flamboyant as ours, and they're a lot more sort of conversational and analytic and stuff. And some people criticize Voyager, Star Trek Voyager, for being that incredibly boring because there isn't any class struggle. There isn't any conflict between the crew. And that you see that in the original series as well. So I think JMP has a point. And I don't think that when we do finally meet some kind of better society, and obviously my hope is that we we take we take 
the the left wing approach. We take the, the 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 goal ending goal being communism, where people work according to their uh, they accord, uh, work according to their need according to their ability. Right that 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 no one is put off in that respect. But there's going to be a lot that's going to need to happen in the interim between that. We're going to have to see that kind of struggle taking place even after say some kind of revolution takes place or something large changes. That that isn't an ending; it's a beginning, and I think maybe that gets brought up better in future iterations of Star Trek. You'll see it a lot in Deep Space Nine. You see it incredibly in in Star Trek Discovery. So, I would say my criticisms of Star Trek are very similar to that of JMPs or any other one, any, any other person who comes from a principled leftist perspective. That no, Star Trek doesn't solve problems in the way that we see problems getting solved. Right? They they get saved by a skyhook. Basically, the Vulcans come and save us, but. I don't think that it's outside of leftist talk to to see the world that gets created and and draw from the things that work for us and be critical of the things that don't. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love Star Trek so much is sometimes I'm looking at it very kind of cockeyed, and then other times I'm looking at it super wide-eyed, and it flips between those two things. For the second question, how would I truly see a communist Star Trek differ from its current iterations? Again, JMP brings up, I think it was um, uh, Philip K. Dick has, has actually a story where basically communists make it to space and start interacting with other people. So I would see Star Trek and Starfleet being completely different. I would see hierarchy differ for the different different things that need to happen so like there wouldn't necessarily be like a captain of a ship there would be people who would control um, the ship in times of crisis in times of exploration in times of discovery Um, i think that there would be a lot more sort of modular functioning parts that interact with one another and and actually i mean it how i understand uh cree culture the 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 people who live uh who who are indigenous to where i'm from their, their name is is the cree people they actually would work in a very sort of modular sort of way where they would have a peace chief and a war chief and a council of elders and women would have the final say on certain things. And they were a completely functioning society that were able to manage the the movement of bison. They were able to predict weather phenomena. They were able to interact with other groups of people. So I, I honestly think that a future spacefaring human race would have to draw from a bit of their hunter-gatherer roots and draw from, um, I would say, draw from the, the Marxist tradition to fully realize a functioning spacefaring group of people. Otherwise, I don't think we're going to get even past the moon. Mm. And and there's a there's an inherent problem here. And, and when uh, JMP talks about, you know, Star Trek as, as fundamentally or at least partially imperialistic, it's, I started asking myself the question, like, how exactly is it imperial? And one of the answers to that might not be what he had in mind, but what I think of, and it also kind of poses a problem to to any possible communist future of going out into the stars and trying to understand, you know, the the cosmos at a deeper level is this connection between colonialism and science and the sort of assumptions um, that a, a certain species would have going out into um, the rest of the cosmos and engaging with other peoples. So like once you do that, once you make contact with another species or civilization, um, once you, even if you do it in, in a in sincere attempt to go out and learn about the world and increase overall knowledge, that interaction fundamentally changes the thing you've interacted with, right? And like 
when when in, in a colonial project, um, you know, you have the the rise of of racial science and and eugenics, and you have Western scientists going into you know uh, native territories or, or previously unexplored land and either engaging in like brutal domination and conflict with them or even in the more softer just we're investigating what the life for these people is like um, there's a real question in science about how much does is that valid and um, maybe if we had um, an anthropologist on they could give us a, a better answer of how to and how not to go about that um, but that I think is at least something that we should worry about regardless of, of what sort of Star Trek we could we could possibly imagine but I do think ultimately that Barry had a good point in that interview where Barry said says maybe it would help us understand the Star Trek world better if we could go and have the perspective of of like whatever whatever the lowest strata of that class of that society is right so if we can go back to earth or wherever the home planet is for whatever series we're talking about here what, what like taking the perspective of the least well off right the least favored that is the perspective that I think a radical must take, and it would be incredibly illuminating for this entire discussion. If and maybe maybe there are in some series, and you guys could tell me, maybe there are attempts to do that. But I think it would it would flesh out a lot of these questions and really give us a better understanding of what sort of you know political or social or economic structures are in place and are, are undergirding this entire you know this entire universe. And I think to a capitalistic mindset. That's why they never imagined that, and I think that's where that's where a leftist mindset could could say that and and could bring that up pretty well. So no, that's a really good point. How 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 is the most downtrodden inside of the United Federation of Planets being treated? And if we find their way of life unacceptable, even to our own standards, then then I would say that the project of the United Federation of Planets would have been an abject failure. As well as as well that as well as the 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 peoples or the the aliens that they encounter, right? Does that encounter even if even if we could say that that was a, a completely communist society, you know, we went back, we looked at the home and the this civilization is actually truly communist. How does that encounter with a new alien life form that might not be in in ways similar to us? How does that just that 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 encounter create hierarchies how does that encounter create a system even if it's brief of domination um and and bloodshed and certainly there's there's you know fighting and conflict in this in the star trek universe so even if everything's good back at home once you go out and bump heads with another civilization does that give rise to to new hierarchies and, and new forms of domination and exploitation and that you know that could just be a perpetual problem i don't even know how to think about that it sort of escapes the purview of my understanding but those are the questions that i was asking myself Um, is your writing influenced by a political will to expand horizons and provide a voice to those quote unquote dreamers in the margins? Or is your inspiration to write from a more personal desire to tell stories where the characters represent personalities and concepts that you wish to express through experience? I don't think of myself as providing anyone with a voice because I believe everybody can speak for themselves perfectly fine. So I will write things as an act of ego than of empathy, which I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will disagree, but mostly writers will write for ourselves first. So what I, I want to do is to represent what I want to see. So in this, in my case, it's focused on decolonizing, imagining a future without the current dominant narrative, without hegemony, and, okay, a more positive future, despite my claim to be a I came for being a pest. <laughs> Shashank, 
Any thoughts? Uh, like I said, if I, I genuinely do not want, uh, I do not want people throwing sickles at me or <laughs> Never. Uh, leaving communist flags at my doorstep. <laughs> uh, so I just those were great points. I. Uh, I I cannot even I shudder to even imagine what that would look like because uh, my ignorance shows there I've never never not thought of Star Trek as something so liberal and so democrat based so progressive that I uh, that I took a step back and thought hey what would a commie version of this look like mm. so that is uh, that is definitely uh, that is definitely a hole in my life that I need to fill up. Well, we won't we won't throw any sickles your way, and uh, as as commies, and as long as as a Democrat, you don't fire any drone strikes. Or <laughs> if I if I'll I take do, I deal. will absolutely plead the fifth and deny it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. So there you go. <laughs> I think if you don't have anything to say, it's pretty difficult to write a story that has meaning that is going to resonate with people. So having something to say is really important to me. And obviously, it doesn't have to be super blunt, like what people think of a message fiction, but it does have to have a core of what you want to do, what you want to see. And that will inform everything in your writing, from the characters, theme, even the prose. How did you get into literature? Like uh, growing up, was it something that you were ch- as uh, fascinated with as a child, or was it something that you sort of cultivated as you grew into an adult? Like, what was some of your early experiences with literature that pushed you in the direction to become a writer? Uh, I, I, I suspect, like most writers, I read a lot as a child, and I think it's, it's the uh, for me it's the most intuitive way of absorbing information more than through visual or auditory media. So it was the natural progression for me to write rather than to to make music or to get into filmmaking. And when did you become politically engaged? When did your political consciousness sort of blossom? That is actually kind of difficult. I think it's hard to put a finger on that. But I think uh, some of my some of my formative influence well, okay, uh, the original course in the show, it was uh, what made me very curious about uh, the interaction of body and technology, the interaction of consciousness and memory. And eventually, when I when I was a bit more grown up, which, because I watched this, uh, the original movie when I was a very young child, so a lot of that went over my head. Mm. So when I was uh, older and started watching more of this and came back to it, I've I started to understand the geopolitical aspect of this show. And first in the show is really political. It gets into the the how the Japanese regard uh, regard America and the political map of the world. So that was very influential for me. And then do you have like because I know um JMP, who we've had on the show before, is you know, self-identifies as a Marxist Leninist Maoist. Um, do you have a political tendency that you adhere to, or are you just sort of broadly on the left? How do you think about and identify yourself politically? I don't really identify myself as such, but I talk a lot about post-colonialism, they colonize things. But I don't I don't think we have any kind of label for that. We don't call ourselves decolonialists. But I suppose I would call myself at least a post-colonialist.
Well, I guess we should wrap up the conversation now. Um, this is probably already going to be somewhat of a, of a long conversation between everybody talking here. So I guess maybe the, the best way to, to end this entire discussion is what do you hope people take out of this book, out of this interview, as well as our collaboration here tonight? Uh, as someone who did not get to read the book in full, uh, but did get to, uh, to enjoy the interviews, uh, I really hope uh, the first thing that people look at is this is uh, this is a great exercise in normalization of ideas and ideals and beliefs. Mm. It's uh, it was a it was a very good, constructive, creative, and uh, very positive way to expose each other. Uh, or at least to me, expose myself to the idea of communism. When 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 people say communist, or uh, when I read communist, or when I read when I go back in back home, the communists I know only the the narratives that have been fed have been you know these are people that live in jungles and then they try to kill people and uh, they're they're very much anti-society. So uh, when I go out of that and then I jump into something like this, I I immediately uh i find someone at a star trek convention who happens to enjoy and love everything that i do that person just happens to identify with something that my narrative has been different about so i i hope people take that uh when i could sit down and uh not only normalize it but uh, celebrate it and accept it and believe that this is a viable uh, means and a viable school of belief for millions of people around the world and there is a reason why it's working. Uh, it only happened because there was uh, a constructive, uh, creative individual at the other end who sat down and let me walk through that journey. So I, I hope people don't just uh, close themselves off. Uh, they accept that there are different ideas and much like uh, within methods devoured themselves where, you know, fiction is trying to stand up against nonfiction, which is its parent and nonfiction is trying to stand up against its, its subservient, a subset. And they're both trying to coexist. When that can happen, I think, uh, I think the possibilities are endless. And I really hope that's what they take away from it. Mm. Barry? If you're going to get anything from this book, I, I, I just hope it broadens your horizons because, like I said, the the incandescence of uh, from Bee's writing and her taking you like you're going to go to a different place. It nothing will be familiar, and that for me was was the most educational, the most um, the most enlightening sort of moment where I was able to to look outside of any kind of paradigm i could it was interesting because uh, uh benjamin mentions that that the ghost in the shell the the uh, animated movie from 1995 i believe was was very influential for her and and it was for me too and it was great to share that moment when she and i were chatting uh, over email about it but when i think about like the buildings that i saw and the faces of the anime characters they were all very familiar to me because let's face it anime does have uh, it does sort of um Europeanize some of its characters and their characteristics to some degree, which is why I think they were able to make the abomination that was the movie just recently um, <laughs> and, and whitewash it almost completely. Right. So with that, I, I think that when she when she has that connection, that's something that I can connect with her as an author. But when she writes, she takes you to a world that, unless you are from, say, you know, areas you know areas of the world where she has lived or where she is from specifically you're not going to have that frame of reference. And yeah, you might have to jump on the internet a few times and, and read and, and look and learn and, and see some of the, the deeper pieces to that. So 
I think in that respect, that's that in itself is reason to read it. But then also, no matter where you come on the political spectrum, and know that I am I am engaged in in a debate with myself right now in in self discovery, and JMP has done a lot to help me articulate a lot of my viewpoints. Brett, you've helped me with your with your show see all the different types of of left wing politics and philosophies that exist. And Shashank, you have been not only my companion through talking about Star Trek through the show we do, but you've also you know you've been there for me and and have listened to me talk and and just bounce ideas off of off of um, off of your head in terms of what you think. And you've always provided those sort of sober second thoughts. So I think life itself is about seeking out new groups of people, seeking out new ideas, exploring that sort of thing. And in the spirit of the, of the show that Shashank and I base our podcast off of, that's the true exploration. And we don't have spaceships. We don't have warp technology. We don't have the ability to cast magical spells or anything like that. So where are we going to expand our imagination? It's through discourse. It's through dialogue. It's through learning. And this book will force you to learn. And I think that's a beautiful, a beautiful thing because it really does take take you outside of um, of what what is normal to to maybe you. And it might answer some deeper questions that uh, you might not have even known you were you were totally asking. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just echo, you know, both of, of those those answers and just add that, you know, developing new interests, challenging yourself, stepping outside of your intellectual or artistic comfort zone, um, it, it can be it can be scary. It can it can make you feel um, you know, like you don't know as much as you thought you knew. But that is how we develop and that is how we, we become better, more well rounded human beings that can go on and, and and love and teach other people. And that is an important part of being a human being. If you stop learning, if you say, Hey, all the ideas I have in my my head right now are sufficient. I do not need to really engage that hard with any other new challenging ideas. You know, that is when like the sort of the, the intellectual life dies. And so no matter what part of the political world or the artistic world, the science fiction world that you come out of, even if you completely disagree with you know, everything I've said tonight, um, you know, I hope we can at least engage in a meaningful way that we often don't find, for example, on social media, right? There's no nuance, there's no real good faith uh, dialogue between spheres of interest. Um, and th- that's sort of a tragedy of discourse and a tragedy of development. So I'd encourage that. And the last thing I would say is, as I've said a few times throughout this episode, creativity sort of blossoms out of uh, associations between seemingly disparate fields of, of research and understanding and interest. So the more stuff that you can engage with, the more things you can pull from, the more associations you can make in your mind, the more creative of a thinker and of a human being that you can possibly be. And I think this is one example of this book and this interview and even our collaboration here is one example of of trying to reach across spheres and do so in a way that is respectful and engaging and 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 humility uh, being humble about it, right? Being having humility about it is an important part of of growth and development. So I love this conversation. I love this collaboration. I love this book. And if there's artists out there, if there's uh, writers, if there's political thinkers, um, starting to think about how you can take what you already are good at and mix it with somebody else who's good at something else, like this book does, I think is an interesting challenge for all of us. And and if we can do that, I think we'd all be better for it. You're here. is a question we ask everyone who comes on the show if uh you can pick which enterprise but if the enterprise actually existed and you were suddenly plopped in it where would we find you 
Where would you find me in the enterprise? On the holodeck. <laughs> Ooh, what would you be, what would you be doing on the holodeck? I don't know, finding a way to interact with all these historical figures I never met in real life. Who who would be a number one historical figure? Oh man, I mean number there's no number one, but I mean obviously you, you know the, the, I, if I don't say Marx or Engels, I you know I lose my credentials right now as a yeah. Marxist philosopher, <laughs> Lenin, Mao, those you know those people. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> So with one uh, one quick last little question that we would ask you, uh, Brett, is first of all, where can people find you? And then if you found yourself on any enterprise, I'm sure you can visualize sort of the rudiments of, of the enterprise, where would we find you? Well, you can find me in the real world at um, a revolutionary left radio at Rev Left Radio on Twitter at Guillotine Pod. Um, my personal Twitter account is at Dead Irish Rebel. Um, you Google revolutionary left radio, you Google any of that, uh, you'll certainly find me. Um, as far as who I would be on, uh, on the Starfleet, is that the question? Where, where would you be on the Enterprise? What would you be doing? Hmm, that is interesting. Um, I, I love JMP. Totally on the spot question. That's all right. I love JMP's answer um, the, of the holodeck that he would spend a lot of his time on, and, and I, I can't beat that. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I guess it's it's a really challenging question. I guess I would want to I'd want to be uh, educating and, and helping people. Maybe taking you know complex ideas that that we're discovering in the cosmos and putting them into terms that that people can understand and be inspired by. Um, so whatever part of the ship that puts me on, I'll take it some kind of liaison officer, maybe even the ship counselor. That would be awesome. Hey, I'll do it. Absolutely. <laughs> How about you? So I guess the same question back at you. Where can people find your show and where would you be on the on the Starfleet? Okay. Uh, the, I think this is a question that I was asked uh, even before I got to record the first episode. And the answer I gave kind of... Uh, kind of led to everything that that followed but people can find me on social media on at gutter underscore hero that's g-u-t-t-e-r underscore h-e-r-o on twitter that's pretty much the only social media i do uh my dms are open feel free to dm me uh tag me and stuff anything nerdy pop culture sci-fi related i can i can talk about anything uh that actually requires intelligence, I will direct you to Barry's Twitter account. <laughs> you can uh, find me you can ahead, find Matt. me at you can find me at uh, B J O R N D E F J O R D Bjorn Defjord um on, on Twitter and yes you will find a, a a glut of either Star Trek related or political socio political related stuff happening there. I tend to not get into many flame wars and if you want to just shit post at me then I'll block you. But if you want to have reasoned and principled debate with me on stuff, I love talking. It's fun. So you can find me there. And uh, to answer your question, uh, Brad, uh, Barry asked me this before our first episode was recorded and I told him in Star Trek, there is a character called the Traveler whose entire job is uh, his his uh, his pursuits are so far beyond space and time. Like the first time you meet him in Star Trek, it's because the ship accidentally travels to the very end of uh, space where they uh, go to the point where time and thought originate. And that's where this character lives. Mm. So when Barry asked me this question, I said, I would like to be the traveler and uh, be in pursuit of that, of the endless, most ambitious, most cosmically mysterious goal and find out what is there under beneath the unknown and and understand what i what there is to be understood and get to the pinnacle of knowledge so uh i would be the traveler i would be the character who would use ships like that to get to that point 
Okay, I'm stealing that answer, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> I I would be I, I to be perfectly honest. I would love to take uh, take the captain's chair, mainly because uh, as we had mentioned, there would be uh, you're a white fa- man. <laughs> if there's class struggle, we're coming for you, Barry. <laughs> well, that's the point, though. Is is you know, as as a person in a leadership position, the best way to lead is through following, right? And, and maybe I'm taking a bit of a Zapatista sort of style tract here. Is is you know, you lead by following, you lead by by putting the interests of those at the bottom first, right? You can even think of it as sort of like a mass line thing. Mm-hmm. I'd, be, I'd be a mass line captain. Hell yeah. So that would be that would be my tact is in that leadership position, the interests of the people on my ship would be at paramount importance. And the fundamentals that we that we cling to, that we hold to, that we study and we wrestle with and, and all that sort of stuff would be at the forefront of that leadership. And that would be that would be far more interesting, and I mean that that was ultimately what I'm trying to do in my in my job as an educator and in my exploration is is how can I when I find myself in leadership roles be as 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 serving of the people as possible as as being with them right um, everything for everyone nothing for ourselves to 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 sort of finish the quote with with the Zapatistas but I mean you see that in in Mao's writing you see that in Lenin you see that in in anarchist writers like Kropotkin and Bookchin right when when you're looking at society you're looking at the least of us and you brought that up in the federation too so i would be captain of the uss i don't know i guess mine would be like i don't know even what i'd call it so i've dug myself a hole but i would be a a mass line captain uss mass line i like it there you go (laughs) well thank you both for coming on thanks for doing this collaboration it's a truly unique uh pretty much novel um, creation we've, we've done here in the podcast world, at least as far as I'm aware. Um, and it's really been an honor to talk to both of you. Uh, the humility, the the empathy, the kindness, the open-mindedness that, that both of you have shown and our guests have shown is really wonderful. And I'm just, I'm just uh, honored to be a part of it. Well, uh, from, from my end, I'd just like to say thank you so much for exposing me to all this, Brett, and uh, letting me be a part of this. And Barry, I hope your ego has been satiated. Thank you. Thank you, Brett, for coming on, on our show as well. It is a high honor and it is something that, that I've been I've been really looking forward to sharing with, with listeners. And, and yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation continuing. Live long and prosper. And onward to Star Society. Yeah.